You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? Oh, well, thanks, Giles. And I trust all our listeners are well and uh, uh, enjoying the discussion. Enjoying the discussion and sympathies also to those in Victoria who find themselves in the middle of yet another lockdown um, extended for another week. So... um, all our best to you people down there. David, um, we have just completed an interview this afternoon with Tony Noonan, who is the Chief Executive of Shell Australia. Shell being, of course, one of the big four oil giants of the world and with some considerable operations in Australia and some considerable ambitions. So based on the announcement last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago that they had secured the New South Wales government contract and promised to build a big battery down in the Riverina, we thought it'd be good to get in touch with them. And so we had this conversation. Let's have a listen now. Tony Noonan, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me, Giles. Much appreciated. Well, um, it's great to have Shell on board here. It's, um, I mean, Shell obviously is a massive company, one of the world's biggest, and it has its fingers in many energy pies and, um, and, and more, I'd imagine. But I guess the trigger for this conversation was the recent contract that you just uh, renegotiated or landed or expanded with the New South Wales government, basically a, an agreement to provide all their electricity for the government buildings, hospitals, police stations, schools and the likes, and included a big battery. Now, this is a substantial deal, 1.8 terawatt hours, which is about sort of 1%, I guess, of you know the entire Australian energy market. I guess it's a good win for Shell. I'm particularly interested to know why a big battery was such an important component of this deal. Yeah, thanks, Giles. It it is an important deal, and, and I think it, it it extends the relationship and the great relationship that we've had with the New South Wales government in providing them with their electricity needs. Um, look, the process we went through was really one that I think is at the heart of my view how we make the energy transition work longer term, and that is spending time with customers to really deeply understand what their what their demands are, and then and then making sure we can match a service that provides that for them. But it's not just what are their demands today, it's how do they want to transition their own energy usage and their own energy requirements in accordance with what we're all trying to achieve to reach net zero through the energy transition. And so what, what pleases me most about that, that, um, that deal with the New South Wales government is that it does that. It provides the reliability, the security, the service that they need for all of those important schools and hospitals, you know, police stations, government buildings but it also helps to transition their demand to lower carbon sources as we go. And the battery itself was something we provided to the government with multiple options for firming capacity. um, And their choice was to go with a battery. And we're really pleased to be able to provide that to them and to do it with our partner, Edify. So what is the green energy component then of this deal? Because it didn't seem to be spelled out very much um, in the announcement. Um, is Does it have a minimum renewable energy um, a contribution? 
we have uh, we, we've got uh, an agreement that we've put in place with the New South Wales government that provides the flexibility. But of course, the key thing about batteries is that we will use them in situations where there's ex excess production of power into the system. That is generally going to be when we have when we see excess solar or wind production that then allows us to capture that, store it, and then provide it to our customers at times when there isn't excess production of renewables into the system. And so whilst we're still relying on the grid, we're still working with the grid, battery storage helps to be able to really support that strong penetration of renewables, particularly solar and wind, and then allows us to be able to provide power back to our customers at times when there isn't excess renewables within, within the grid. So it's very purposely designed to do that with the New South Wales government. And we're really pleased to be able to partner with them to do to pull together a proposal like this. So you're just taking basically the average grid mix then in this contract, um, and, and 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 will you be adding more batteries as time goes on? That's that's our plan. So our plan is to continue to look at opportunities within the Australian market, um, particularly the Australian electricity market, to see where we believe that we can we can either provide firming capacity or additional renewable options but really customer-led. And I think what's key for us, and, and, and Australia is really a great example of how we want to apply our global strategy, which is working with customers to understand their demands today, their needs today, but also, and most importantly, what do they need in the future? And by doing that, we can help them on their net zero journey, but also we can match our portfolio to provide the services that they need. And so we'll continue to look at options and opportunities like this, um, and we want to make sure that ultimately what we're providing is really exactly what a customer needs. And, and they want reliability, they want consistency, but they also want to deliver a net zero ambition, um, which, is, which is a key focus for all of us. So, Tony, I, I'd like to come on to Shell's global ambition and how it relates to Shell's very 15 million tonne LNG portfolio in Australia, if I've added it up right. But it's great to talk about Shell Energy in Australia Electricity, which is the old ERM. At the time that Shell acquired ERM, it was about, I don't know, 15 terawatt hours of supply. I'm just wondering how the business has gone for you since acquisition generally. Have you been able to grow sales? And if you could say a little bit about what customers' preference. You talked about being customer-driven my feeling is that customers are more concerned about green energy than they than they used to be, but are they prepared to pay up for it in a very slim margin business? Yeah, thanks, David. So so you're right, the, the Shell Energy business that we run in Australia today is largely the ERM business that we acquired um, in 2019. Uh, it was a great business. We were really, really pleased um, to be able to, to join with the talented team that existed in ERM and bring them into the Shell organisation. Um, and to work with them on how we can continue the, the, the great market development that they did, the service focus that they've got for their customers. And, and to be honest, they have done an extraordinary job in doing that. And then also leverage the scale capability and portfolio of Shell to bring the two together. I, I've personally been really pleased with that progress. Um, I've been really pleased with the continued focus of that business on, on ensuring that it runs as a viable, profitable business and continues to build its both customer portfolio and, and also really strong and deep customer relationships. So, so that, that has been something that we've, we've been intent on, on working hard with the, with the Shell Energy team to deliver. But it also sets an example for how these things can be done on, on a global level. And, and that's a great contribution that we can make here in Australia to our global business. On the second part of your question on customer sure. demand... Um, absolutely. We, we are increasingly seeing customers who are, who are continuing to look for 
lower carbon solutions in their power. Uh, and that's not just lower carbon because of, of, grid, of grid intensity or ensuring that we link it directly to renewable supply. It's also looking at the efficiency of their own power use. And I think what the Shell Energy team do really well is that they, they not only look at how can we tailor the, the electricity supply component to meet where they want to go as a customer, but also work with them on their own efficiency in electricity use, because it's a combination of those things that are going to help us moving forward. Um, and doing that together, I think, is a, is a really strong, a real strength of that business. Sure. I, I mean, I, 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 I get as, a, as a financial analyst, all the general corporate uh, motherhood statements, if I could say so. Uh, and I appreciate that you're using Shell in Australia uh, as, as a global model and, and, uh, or ERM. Just generally on the electricity market, I mean, we see falling wholesale power prices. You're a retailer. So in one sense, you don't care. But on the other hand, it might make everyone very jealous of market share and things could get competitive. Are you able to actually comment on, on sort of the, the competitiveness sort of uh, intensity at the moment versus how it has been? Oh, it's difficult. It's difficult to say definitively that there's been a substantial change in, in competitiveness. But, but, but I would, what I would say is that competition is a great thing. It's a great thing for consumers. It's a great thing for market participants. And hopefully it will also drive a more efficient market longer term. Um, it is, it is, you're right, that there has been a significant reduction in wholesale prices. It has, it has created some challenges within the, the energy sector. Um, and I think what we've got to really keep a close eye on is that investments continue to keep up with, with what's going to be needed longer term. Um, but competition in the, in the market and in the electricity sector is only a good thing. It's only a good thing for consumers. And, and for us, we welcome it. And we not only welcome it here, but we welcome that in the way that we do business across all of our sectors. I know that David's busting to ask a question about LNG, so I'm just going to slip one last <laughs> question about the electricity market here. Um, when you did buy ERM, Shell talked about sort of being in a position to challenge the incumbent retailers, the big gentailers in Australia by the end of the decade, so the Origins, the AGLs, the Energy Australias of the world. Is that still your intention? And given that people like Shell and Telstra that we see are also entering the market, how different is the market going to look in 10 or even 20 years' time than what it does now? Yeah, this is this is actually one of the things I'm sure that 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 occupies the minds of not not only the three of us on on this podcast, but I'm sure everyone that's listening and and also people who are just general energy consumers, is what will it look like and how will how will we get there? Um, I think a big part of that is going to be really driven by a, more of a customer pull through as opposed to just the, the energy suppliers providing the direct products. I think there'll be a lot more customer interaction that drives the demand and a lot more of, of a of responsiveness in the way that the suppliers of, of energy deliver that into their customers. And so, so competition within that market will change and also the interaction between a consumer and their energy provider will change as well. Um, they're all good things. And, and I think that seeing that happening and seeing that evolve is, is, is both good for consumers, but I also hope that what's really important for us, it's got to be good as well for the energy system, that we've got to make sure that we're able to translate changes in, in buyer or consumer um, demands, what they're after in their services, but we do it in a way where we keep an eye on, on the energy system as a whole, that it continues to meet the needs of, of customers. I think for us, so, so in terms of, of ambition, 
Um, Shell Energy, the LDRM, it is focused on business and industrial customers, and we continue to do that today. Uh, but we will always look for opportunities to be able to serve customers, not just in the, in the business and industrial sector, but also more broadly across the country. Um, and we will, we will look at opportunities to do that and we'll continue to find what we think where we can add the most value for our customers and then, and then go after that. So, Tony, I, 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 in preparing for this interview, I, I read the, uh, a lot of documents, including some of the Shell Global Strategy uh, documents from a month and two ago, and uh, tried to uh, put them in the context of Shell Australia, which has a large, as I said, LNG portfolio interests in two or three uh, major projects. And I think that uh, Shell globally sees LNG and gas as, as a big fuel in meeting global decarbonisation, uh, which I don't quite understand because gas itself is the third biggest contributor to, to carbon emissions. But let's put that to one side. On the other hand, I heard Peter Coleman, the outgoing CEO of Woodside, your partner in the Northwest Shelf, uh, talking, talking about no more big LNG projects are going to get done in Australia. I, I just wondered uh, in what your, your sort of thinking personally is or as the head of Shell Australia about the, the, the role of LNG specifically in Australia going forward and, and, and gas more generally? Yeah, thanks, David. The, um, we've, as it turns out, I think this week we're 120 years in the country. So Shell, Shell's been operating and, and supplying energy to our customers for 120 years. And so our story in Australia is, is one that I'm very proud of, but it's also a story of transition. You know, we, we, started, we started with importing kerosene. We were very large refiners of oil products here in Australia. Um, we had interest in coal. And over time, we've actually exited those positions. And our portfolio today in Australia is LNG. And we've got a really significant LNG portfolio, as you pointed out. And then increasingly, our investments in renewables, um, in, in battery storage, and, and in, the, in the electricity system. Um, on LNG, so we do see LNG as, as both a really, really important fuel source to help support the energy transition. Um, and we also see increasing demand for that product as we move out into the, the, the late 20s and also into the 30s. What, why, do, why do we see that as being, as being an important fuel? It's because it provides customers, particularly customers in Asia, um, with an opportunity to be able to transition from coal to electricity, to coal to, to LNG or to gas for, for electricity services, and then helps that continued decarbonisation all of the way to, to net zero. Um, and we see that demand as being an important one. And, and I'm actually really pleased that our portfolio here in Australia contributes to that um, and helps that transition as it goes. And, and I'll just ask one more question, then hand back to Giles. Generally speaking, when I look at the strategy of the oil majors, from sitting at my desk here in Linfield, uh, uh, it seems that it is, they're lo looking at, two, at ways they can use their existing skill base. One of them uh, seems to be in moving into hydrogen generally, and that could be green ore or brown hydrogen. And another one is to use their offshore drilling technology capabilities to move into offshore wind. I'm just wondering how Shell thinks about those two things. I mean, offshore wind in Japan could be a very big business, as could ammonia or hydrogen uh, production and exports. Uh, how's Shell thinking about those? Yeah, well, actually, you, you, you're spot on. We, we do see that there are there are skills and capability that we have today 
that lend themselves to the transition as we go through in the next decades, the decades in front of us. Um, clearly, the capability we've got around LNG supports the capability needed for a large-scale export hydrogen industry. Um, and that's not just for us in Shell globally. I actually think that's a really important thing we can't lose sight of for this as a country. You know, Australia has and is currently the largest exporter of LNG. We have immense capability and talent in this country that supports that industry. The world will need to find a, a, a zero carbon fuel source for the future. So the things that we can't electrify will require molecules to be able to power them. And we're thinking things like, you know, really heavy, heavy transport, certain types of industrial sectors. Export of hydrogen is going to be an important thing for us as a country. And I think we've got the skills and capability to be able to do that. So, so that is a clear one. But the other ones you mentioned are also important. We have really significant offshore wind developments, particularly in Europe, that, that we are um, both uh, developing as part of a company, but we're also making sure that we offtake from. And then likewise, I think the other one that, that you didn't mention, which is really important from a technological perspective and is critical to be able to support the transition, is carbon capture and storage. And, and that is a, as a technology, we have, we have really deep capability in understanding geological structures, understanding reservoir dynamics, finding the appropriate reservoirs for CO2 storage, and then doing that safely. So, so I must admit, you know, one, one of the things that the, the challenges as we, we talk about this sort of transition is that we can often get, get caught in, in a concern that there's some sort of a, a negative impact or it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create this sort of existential threat. Whereas what you just outlined then, David, is absolutely the opportunity that sits within it, both for us as a, as a company, so that's Shell globally, but I think really importantly for us as a country. You know, Australia should see tremendous opportunity through the transition, and our job is to make sure we get our lion's share of it, uh, because that's our great competitive advantage. What sort of projects does Shell have in those sort of offshore wind and, um, and, and, and green hydrogen? Do they have anything specific in Australia? Not specific in Australia. So we don't have offshore wind interests in Australia. We've done an incredible amount of work on hydrogen. Um, it's not a new uh, product for us. It's not a new industry for us. We, we've, we've actually been selling hydrogen to customers for decades around the world. Um, we have you know, a deep understanding of, of hydrogen and what makes it work. Um, we've looked very closely at hydrogen opportunities in Australia. We will keep looking very closely at hydrogen opportunities in Australia. And I think that the thing we focus on is how do we make sure that we deliver products that our customers are after. And so on the mm -hmm. one hand, that's continuing to support increased domestic demand for hydrogen, but then, but then using that increased domestic demand to be able to build the scale we need for export. And again, for a country of 25 million people, being able to, to not only supply what we need here, but continuing to export is important. Mm -hmm. You talk about the sort of, you know, the, the transition to sort of net zero emissions. You talk about the opportunities. Um, Shell has also been involved in this landmark court case in the Netherlands where a court found, um, you know, um, brought by a climate group. I'm talking about, you know, complaining that Shell was basically not taking it seriously enough. I mean, you talk about the opportunities I mean, and... And I think all the scientists and even the IEA say that the opportunities are there, but we must transition really, really quickly. How does Shell play its role? <laughs> and this is a tricky question. Given the pressure that comes from court cases such as the ones in the Netherlands and the fact that it's not really good enough just to get to net zero emissions by 2050, that's really the bare minimum that's needed. What we needed now is an accelerated transition over the next 10 years. 
So, so it is a tricky question, but I, I actually think it's the most important one. Um, and, and we as a company have a really important role to play in that. And, and this, this debate, I think, like many debates, they're often, they're often defined by the extremes of a debate. And so, so on one extreme, there's a view that, that potentially we could just stop our reliance on hydrocarbon-based energy today. And if we did that, it would force the transition and, and we would get there very, very quickly. The other extreme is a more passive one, which is one where, where you know, energy suppliers just say, hey, look, we're just providing what our customers need. If they, they buy it, we produce it and off we go. I actually think the solution sits in between those. And, and that solution is one where we recognise the sentiment of urgency. And I think that the decision that you refer to is another example of the sentiment of urgency. Um, and we use that to work with our customers to be able to, to help them on their journey. And it's not good enough for us to, to be passive in that. I think what we've got to do is to be able to provide them with the products that help them to transition. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's a really, really key role that we play in that. And we've got to do it um, together with, with governments around the world, governments here in Australia, but also, but also with our partners and customers. But there's absolutely no doubt that a company like us with our scale, the role that we play is incredibly important in that. And, and the, the key focus is it's got to be urgent. You know, we, we've, there's alignment on the direction that we're going in. There's alignment on getting to net zero. And, and your point's right. But the real debate at the moment is how quickly can we get there? And so, Tony, I'd, I'd like to come back to one micro issue, uh, only partly because I think your original background is in land science. And recently, um, uh, uh, there was a sanction of the Arrow project to produce up to, I think, something like 90 petajoules a year of gas from the Surat Basin in what I seem to remember is relatively shallow depth or good agricultural land. I'm just wondering how the community up there feels about that. I expect you to be have some background in, you know, whether people feel better or worse these days about coal seam gas wells in farmland. Yeah, so it does, it does, this is a really important issue for me personally, both because of my background, as, as you mentioned, David, but also uh, because of the experience that I've had over the last decade or so, in particular the time that I ran QGC, which is our, our, our large onshore gas business and, and, and LNG project in Queensland. Look, I've, I must admit I have been really pleased with the journey that we've been on with, with our landholders. Um, the reason why I say pleased with it is that they have, they have given us the greatest gift along the way, and that's feedback when we don't get things right. And what's pleased me as a company, we've been able to hear that and respond. And so the relationship that we have, particularly for the QGC business um, and, and the thousands of landholders that we interact with daily, um, is one where there's where there's respect, there's recognition of of both how we work together, and also a desire to to deliver the best for a region. And so so I look at the Western Downs and and I see a diversified economy, one which has a very very strong agricultural sector, one that now has a strong gas sector, and off the back of that, and a lot of investment in transmission infrastructure that's also allowed significant investments in in um, in solar and renewable energy and wind. Those, all of those benefits that flow through communities and regional economies, that, that's off the back of the support that comes from landholders who, who host us on their land. And our job is to make sure that we deeply respect that and continue to respect it. So, so that's been a hell of a journey and one that personally means a lot to me. 
Um, so Arrow, Arrow is is as as you mentioned, it's a it's a joint venture company that we own fifty percent of as Shell with our partners CNPC. They are going through another large scale development. Um, I, I've seen the same approach of of you know working with landholders to ensure that that we're able to deliver coexistence on their land, and it's got to be matched for their land type. And you mentioned the good quality agricultural land. That country really needs a very purposeful design and a really clear, you know, plan to work with landholders on, on how you both ensure that, that the agricultural production is maximised and you can allow for the development of, of the coal seam gas business that goes with it. So it's a really, really important thing for, for us, for Arrow and for the industry. And it's something that not for a second do we ever take for granted. It's just fundamental for our businesses that we do that well. Can I ask about electric vehicles and the transition to electric vehicles? We're not seeing it happen, happen very fast in Australia, but it's certainly quickening pace in um, overseas. What's your short and long-term strategy there? We, we see the Shell sign just about everywhere now in service stations. Are you looking to for ways to transition those to become large electric vehicle charging stations or fuel or fuel cell hydrogen refueling stations? Um, you just got to pack up your bags and, and, and wait for the EV charging stations to pop up in hotels and restaurants and things like that. Um, what's, um, what, what's your immediate tasks there and what's your sort of, you know, your sort of um, longer and, and, and uh, much longer term strategy? I think it speaks to the, to the concept of, of being able to provide the options for customers to transition. And absolutely, um, fast charging for EV vehicles is one of those. It's something that we've invested heavily in across our portfolio globally. And it's, it's certainly something that we look closely at here in Australia. What one with our, with our partners, so the, the service station network in Australia um, is owned by a company called Viva and they've got a brand license agreement with us and we work very, very closely with them. I know that's something that they're looking at closely as well. So, so we do see increasing demand for fast charging and EV, EV services. You mentioned hydrogen as well. That, that is something that we do, we do sell directly to, to car owners, car users in other markets around the world. So Europe, Germany is strong, the US and places like that. Again, we see that as being expertise that we're capable of deploying um, where we start to see the market demand come for it. And, and my, my hope is that, that as a country, we do start seeing that, that, that those transitions of individual buyers, and it's a tough call. You know, when, you, when you're buying a vehicle of some description, to make the decision to transition to to either EVs or hydrogen, uh, but where that happens, we've got to make sure that we support our customers to do so. Have you made the transition yourself? Is the is the company making a transition for its fleet? We've uh, we've got many many of our employees who have. I'm actually in probably not dissimilar to a lot of people. I've got um, my wife and I have got four young kids. Um, I shouldn't say young. High, high school and primary school. They'll be disappointed that I called them young. Um, the uh, the four young kids, which means that, that our choice of vehicle requires size and scale. And so, what what I'm certainly hoping for is that we end up with with EVs that that will fit, will suit my family's needs. And I reckon that will be coming pretty soon. And I must admit, it's something I'm really hopeful for because there'll be a lot of other people like me and my wife who, who will be waiting for that as an option to be able to transition as well. We'll put you down. I'd agree with that. We'll put you. I, I think the lack of rain, lack of models is, is one of the things. But it's a, it is. It's not. It's not a whinge from me by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's just the point when we talk about this broader transition. It's actually individual decisions that drive it. And I think over time, the more option that a consumer has, the better the better will be because we'll be able to take advantage of of options that are lower carbon, move us faster. 
Yes, I, I, I mean, I, do, I must say, I look in Europe, and uh, uh, which is the leader here, I guess, um, and there's a question of how much attention to pay to Europe as opposed to paying to China. That's the perpetual debate on nearly everything to do with energy in Australia. But, you know, the new kind of like uh, vehicle emission standards that they're putting in place, uh, something six, I think it is, it seemed, I've seen a couple of car companies recently, Nissan was one that just says they can't develop for that and develop for electric vehicles and develop for hydrogen. They, they have to make investment choices. And, and for Nissan, it seemed like it was going to be electric vehicles. But any, anyhow, that's, uh, that's all in the future. It is, yeah. And again, it's another example that, that, um, that, that there's a lot of work that's got to sit behind us providing choice and options for end users. The more that we do that together, again, I think the better outcomes we'll get. Can I just ask about a couple of other transactions that you've done over the last 12 to 18 months? Once was the purchase of a share stake in Esco Pacific, which is a, um, a solar, um, large-scale solar farm developer in Australia, and also the purchase, which is the global purchase or European purchase of the Sonnen battery. So I guess my first question is about you're building the Gangari solar farm at the moment in Queensland. Now, that's had a few issues there, particularly with contractors and squabbles and one subcontractor going belly up and into administration and um, it got a bit messy there for a while. Um, so I guess my first question is um, very briefly on Gangari. Is that all sorted now? Two, what are your plans for more solar farms in Australia? And um, are you in the right sector? Is it going to be solar or is, is as David has written quite eloquently today, um, the, big, <laughs> the, big, the bigger deal might be in wind? Yes, so I'll, I'll go through each one of them. Um, Gangari, so, so for, for those listeners, Gangari is a solar project that we're building in, in central Queensland. Um, it, it's, it's an important project for us and, and really two reasons. One is it helps us to decarbonise our existing businesses. It actually is built off the back of and, and geographically is built with um, our large um, upstream gas business, which is the QGC business in Queensland. So it helps us to decarbonise that, which is actually a large electricity user. But it also helps because it's grid connected. It's helping to, to reduce the CO2 intensity of the, of the Australian grid to the East Coast grid. So, so both things really, really important for us. But it's also a project. And we've got, we've got significant project delivery experience here in Australia through, through all of our, well, both our history over, over time, but also in particular over the last decade or so with our LNG projects. From time to time, those projects can have some hiccups along the way. And we have seen that with Gangari. Um, and, and I think you touched on it well, Giles, about the, the challenges that we've had along the way. We have focused really heavily on, on how we ensure that we safely deliver that project and we do it in the right way for, uh, for the end users ultimately, but along the way, um, our contractors and the community. And so I have been pleased that we've made progress there. The, th the thing for me is we, we have high expectations and we have high standards. My expectation is that we will we will continue to focus heavily on on the delivery of that project and to make it a success. So it's got my attention. Is the is the short summary? Um, in terms of in terms of uh, where we go, so in terms of investments in, in solar, clearly um, Gangari is a clear shell built project. We have Exco Pacific, which we have a, a forty nine percent sharing. That's really important because we see we see solar development as being a, an important option. Um, in, in supplying renewable power into the grid into the future. And, and it will, and I think that, that what you're alluding to with David, that there will be multiple technological solutions as, as we go. Um, solar will be one of them. It won't be the only one of them. And we see Exco as being a great opportunity to identify projects that will add value, a right for customers, a right for the grid, and then allows us to be able to invest in those. 
Um, more broadly, so we, we, we see, we see, you know, we, we, we actually look at multiple opportunities. We don't just look at, at solar. We don't just look at wind. We'll look at the whole suite of those as we go. Um, but I will say that I think Australia is, is an attractive destination if we can get the energy system itself right for the long term. Um, because if we, if we can really ensure that the renewables are met with appropriate firming, and that firming is appropriately valued, I think the investment will lead to the lowest carbon electricity grid that we can get. And, and in a strange way, that, that's our great contribution on a global scale is to show how you can set up an electricity grid that has a very, very, very high penetration of renewables, has the reliability that we need and delivers for customers. And, and we've got a better opportunity here than a lot of countries on earth. I think that's right. I think, Tony, we've taken up, uh, unless Giles had more questions, uh, we, we, can all, we always have more always. questions, but we've taken up a lot of, your, lot of your time and it's been very insightful to hear a little bit about how Shell is thinking. Uh, you, you guys are a big, powerful global voice and uh, so I, I just want to say thanks for taking no, the time. Thanks, David. Thanks, Giles. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much. And that was Tony Noonan, the Chief Executive of Shell Australia. Um... Look, a lot of focus there on the what the customer wants. Um, still, a lot of detail to be sorted out in their transition. Oh, yes, yeah, Shell's got a long, long way to go. I guess all the big oil companies uh, do. Um, and, you know, Shell in Australia in their LNG business has had a relatively tough time of it. Uh, both the, their West Australian projects, uh, the floating uh, LNG platform Prelude and, and Gorgon have had, had, had issues. Uh, so I suspect he's been quite a busy boy. Yes, indeed. And, um, I mean, look, they've made a big um, song and dance. Well, not a big song and dance, but they did sort of come in and sort of say they'd be challenging the incumbents um, in the electricity industry. I mean, look, landing, buying ERM gave them a good platform, um, securing this contract, um, another sort of jump up. Um, not much in the way of concrete commitment to renewables. They just seem to be taking whatever the grid mix is. Do you reckon they're going to have the wherewithal? They've always got the pockets deep enough, but I mean, to, to actually attack those, um, do AGL, Origin Energy Australia, have something to worry about? Uh, well, uh, I do think that ERM was a major player in the um, in, in the corporate world. As I said, it had about 15 to and higher terawatt hours of uh, contracts, which is, you know, one of the, probably the second biggest uh, in the market almost, or, or, or certainly in the commercial industrial. And, you know, we have to uh, tip our hat, I think, uh, much as you're not going to like me saying this, Giles, uh, to Trevis and Baker, who built up ERM to have, um, or one of the founders to have, you know, a, to be a big business, essentially 60, 70 million of EBITDA. And then he's uh, gone ahead and uh, done this EV uh, tritium uh, charging thing, which is apparently going to have a market capitalization of close to $2 billion. Uh, and yet he, he doesn't have any time really for <laughs> anything except coal generation. I mean, and, you know, he's part of Sunset Power that bought uh, Delta for a million dollars plus whatever liabilities Delta had, uh, which weren't all that many. And he's got a free. Uh, kick to, to give it back to the state government when he doesn't want it anymore uh, for zero cost and zero clean-up liability. <laughs> you, you know what? There's some smart operators out there, aren't there, really? Well, let's not deny um, Trevor St. Baker's ability to make a lot of money out of, and as you say, um, out of ERM, out of Vales Point, and now out of Tritium, and um, he's also... 
um, made a new investment, um, joining it with True Green to bring in three Chinese um, relatively low-cost electric vehicles um, by the end of the year and sort of um, upturn that market. So um, he might even be able to upgrade his um, own sort of rather modest Nissan Leaf. But um, let's see how that goes. Talking about coal power, David, um, Calide. Now, we talked about this last week. It um, had a big explosion uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the uh, grid went very wobbly. Um, about uh, a million people went without power for an hour or two as um, EMO scrambled to keep the lights on, which it um, did, although um, you know a lot of people were out of power for a while. Reports this week that the... Um, just on the scale of the explosion, um, I think one union was reporting that there was an object stuck in the roof which weighed about 300 kilos, which might give you some example of, of exactly uh, the, the scale of this explosion and the force of this explosion. Quite remarkable that no one was injured, really. But the remarkable thing is, or even just as remarkable, is that um, Queensland um, CS Energy seemed equally determined to actually rebuild it. And um, you don't like the idea. Well, it's not that I don't like the idea. Well, I don't, I suppose. I mean, I think it's you can see it as a decision to invest 450 to, to, to build 450 megawatts of new coal generation. That's effectively it. And you ask yourself how that uh, fits uh, within the context of being 50% renewable. And uh, whilst it's a relatively new coal generator in terms of technology and less emittive, emits less than some of the older ones, uh, it, it's, it's you know, a pretty marginal difference when all said and done. Uh, so, you know, I'd have thought that it had been quite the case for, for not uh, 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 rebuilding it. I guess it comes down to what the coal cost is uh, at that plant as well as compared to other, other plants and the fact that there's a couple of companies of interest, uh, like it's Intergen and uh, CS Energy, that are both involved. But, but still, uh, still, it does make you uh, uh, think what's the difference between what people say and what they actually do. And I'm talking about the Queensland Government here. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, down in New South Wales, um, just briefly, um, Energy Australia is talking about making a pumped hydro coal plant at um, the Mount Piper generator. Um, they closed Wallerawang, Wallerawang, um, uh, uh, which I have just as much trouble pronouncing as I do spelling. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, and the water in Lyle Lake, which um, supplies the water to Mount Piper, can be used possibly for pumped hydro storage plant with a new upper reservoir built on the size of the local hill, whose name escapes me. Energy Australia was chasing the Kaltana seawater pumped hydro project, but gave gave up on that one in South Australia. They're contracted to Genex's Kidston pumped hydro project, which finally got its um, final investment decision last week, although I think they've probably announced it about four times now. Um, um, an interesting... Uh, yes. Well, I, I suppose that uh, they've developed a lot of expertise in what it takes to make pumped hydro work, and I suspect everyone uh, with existing transmission uh, uh, capability is wanting to take full advantage of it. Uh, and, of course, if you do that, then you may also be able to manage your clean-up liabilities. But, you know... Uh, there's a lot of talk, and Mount Piper is scheduled to last for longer than uh, various other facilities in New South Wales. So I we'll just have to wait and see how that that plays out. Mm. Um, uh, you know, uh, other yeah. than that, I Can think we're to... going to start getting. To... I was just going to say, Giles. I think only other thing like that. We've seen the new chief executive of AEMO uh, start up this week, and he'll be starting to do the rounds. And uh, I expect we'll be 
hearing the, the the messages, the initial messages coming from that uh, that fairly shortly. Other than that, I'm not sure there has been that much else this week. And just to point out to listeners that as we move into uh, June and then July, uh, it gets into the period where the seasonal production of wind and solar becomes much lower, particularly solar. And so you can expect uh, electricity prices to start moving up again, I think, just for those few months. One other thing we should actually mention is Project Energy Connect. Um, the CFC came in to um, help Transgrid with its largest single um, financing um, deal that it's made since it was created nearly a decade ago. So Transgrid's all good with its $1.83 billion investment. It's got the tick of approval from Australian Energy Regulator. One imagined that Electronet from South Australia will be okay for its share, which is about $450 million. Of course, these guys actually wanted to build this thing 25 years ago, but it was stopped for various reasons. Um, this finally, it seems that the um, w one of the key parts of the ISP um, is going to get built. Absolutely, Giles. It's not much, uh, you know that's another eight hundred megawatts of twenty four seven capacity that it will be added into the line. Um, the initial justification for it was that all the gas would be switched off in South Australia. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that what it actually happened is the gas in South Australia will become available to do some of the firming, the same as the curry-curry uh, plant and, uh, and Energy Australia's uh, expansion in New South Wales are also going to do. All of a sudden, you get a whole lot more gas in South Australia that uh, can go to New South Wales and equally... Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's going to be up and the preliminary works have been done already. And so we expect it to be, they say that be up and running by 2023 uh, Christmas, I guess. Uh, let's, let's wait and see, but that, that's progress of a sort. Indeed. Okay. Look, I think we're going to wrap it up there, David. Um, I can, I can, I, I can feel Australia's um, um, international and it's, um, um, is, um, is, is wobbling at the moment. So um, we might just uh, wrap it up there. Um, thank you very much, NBN. Um, thank you also to our sponsors and a genuine thank to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks to all the listeners. Um, do check out um, the new Driven podcast, an interesting interview about the future of electric bikes. Do check out our new maps that we've been publishing in the last week, one of the uh, big battery storage and also of the uh, map of the uh, big wind and solar installations, both operating and under construction. Um, pretty interesting reference material for everyone with an interest out there. And we'll be back again this time or sometime next week. Bye for now. Charles, I, just, just before you go, uh, you, you, you do make me smile. I'm, I'm glad the electricity system works better than the NBN. But anyway, cheers now. It's <laughs> a good point to make. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.